Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Welcome to the SG Engage podcast. I'm Rachel Hutchison, and I have the honor and pleasure of leading global social responsibility at BlackBot. I'm joined today by Sean Tall Forrester, who is the Executive Director of the Technology Association of Grantmakers. Welcome, Sean Tall. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thank you. So we are here today to talk about the rising role of technology and the people behind the systems in advancing philanthropy's mission. So before we begin, I want to note that in addition to doing this podcast today, we are also going to be sharing this as a special part of Blackboard Grantmaking 2020 Thought Leadership Webinar Series. So we're kind of doing double duty with this conversation today. So thank you again for being game to do this, Chantal. Great. I'm excited. It's a double hitter. So Yes, we don't want to waste any time. We're going to make the most of it. So I want to begin just by asking for us, um, tell our listening audience of SG Engage podcast and webcast listeners. So we know we have lots of people in the world of nonprofits, foundations, individuals interested in social impact, also people at companies like me who do social responsibility. Tell us a little bit about you and about the Technology Association of Grantmakers, which is also referred to as TAG. I am happy to. You know, I I love, Rachel, that you started with uh, a conversation around the people behind the scenes. That's who TAG serves. We are, as you mentioned, the Tech Association of Grantmakers, and our members are the people who work behind the scenes to enable philanthropy. Um, I often think of us as the, the architects, if you will, of philanthropy, of future philanthropy, uh, members of TAG include the data analyst, um, the chief technology officer, the grants manager who maybe happens to also lead a portion of the tech stack for a foundation, maybe even the CFO, the chief financial officer of a small community foundation who has responsibility for all of IT but outsources most of that work. Those are the people, those are our members at over 300 foundations um, in North America, the EU and the UK. These are the people behind the scenes that build the the systems really uh, Mm -hmm. that enable frankly sort of everything that modern philanthropy does. I mean, it's 2022, Uh, philanthropy doesn't doesn't work um, if we don't have people uh, taking care of the infrastructure. So, these are the these are the members of TAG, uh, and we really enable future philanthropy. Um, and we also, more importantly, I like to think scale the investment that grant makers make in the change they seek. And so our members include uh, private foundations of all sizes, family foundations of all sizes, uh, corporate grant makers, and then also community foundations. So you've already kind of answered my first question, which is making sure that the audience understands when we talk about philanthropy, mm-hmm. you're talking about the foundation world and grant makers, correct? Because, you know, different people kind of come at that word from from different contexts. Mm-hmm. Correct. We have some, you know, we have re-granting organizations who are members of ours. Um, we have uh, charitable, small, small uh, charitable organizations, small nonprofits, and then of course, folks like Blackbaud who work arm in arm and partner with the philanthropic sector are also members of TAG. 
So I have a bunch of questions here that I would like to ask you, and I'd like to start by um, talking about something that you said when we last spoke. You talked about what you called philanthropy in service of dot dot dot. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? And in in addition, I think that you you kind of took an expanded view about that, about how the pandemic might have helped us helped inform this service mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd love to say I'm inventing that, uh, but what this is simply reflects what I'm seeing, Rachel. I'm starting to see tag member organizations. I'm starting to see foundations recognize that we have a moment here uh, as a result of the the um, social crises of the past couple of years. In fact, a a recent member a member recently shared a reflection with me, and she was saying, you know, there are so few drivers for change in philanthropy. I mean, when you're the check writer there are very few incentives to change uh, or market forces as she was referring, referring to it. But um, what she's, her position was the pandemic really brought us one that's overdue. And, and she calls this new driver as the rise in the voices of the people we serve. Or the rise in the voices of the people we serve. And that's in multiple ways, right? The pandemic, our, our, our reckoning with equity recently, um, Philanthropy has a rare degree of pressure, I think, uh, on how it gives money and to whom. And so couple that with the you know, democratization of influence through digital tools like, do you know grantadvisor.org, Rachel? Do you know grantadvisor.org? I don't know if I do. There are so many, but I'll go and look at it after this to make sure Ooh. I do. It's like the glass door or the Yelp for philanthropy. Oh, neat. And so yeah. it's a platform where nonprofits now have the ability to rate or provide feedback anonymously on their experience with grantmakers. Mm -hmm. That's the rise in the voice of the people we serve, right? That's new for philanthropy. Yeah. yeah. It's not new for other sectors, private, healthcare, higher ed, public sector. If you're in your neighborhood restaurant now has subject to yeah, yeah. Yelp. Yeah, it's the, the way we work and live today kind of creeping into other areas that maybe haven't. Um, maybe dealt with that before and it's interesting because this these dual pandemics we've been facing really have um, shown us all that we are both global and hyper local at the same time if you have never really noticed before how connected everything is mm -hmm. we can now see it just by walking into the grocery store and seeing what's not on the shelf agreed yeah so so you are advancing within tag something you called the customer experience model so can you tell us a little bit about what your goal is and how you are going to get there? Mm -hmm. um, I love this question. It gets to the heart of philanthropy's relationship with listening to its nonprofits, mm. to its grantees. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the grantee perception report. Mm -hmm. it, it is a, it's a report that many grant makers, uh, it's a survey that many grant makers conduct with their grantee partners. Maybe once every one to two to three years, some funders uh, wait as long as five years. Um, imagine if the private sector only surveyed its customers once every three years. A lot changes in three years, particularly the last three years we just had. You don't even remember what your experience was like with that funder, nor do you remember anything but the most prominent pain point. And if by then the check's been paid, how accurately do you actually remember that prominent pain point? Um, so the 
shifting to an experience, a customer experience framework, mindset, or maybe in this sector, we might call it a change maker experience mm-hmm. framework allows us to develop more robust listening systems with mm-hmm. micro moments of feedback all along the way with passive ways of understanding how well did somebody navigate through my grants management system? How well, what was the experience like? And not through a survey, but through passive data gathering where I don't have to ask them for their feedback. I can just see it. Where are they getting lost? How long is it taking? So on and so forth. If the sector can adopt that kind of experience framework we have the ability to say, how well are we doing in serving the people that actually do the work on yeah. the ground? Yeah, how remove well barriers. Yeah, help them remove barriers. We, we've often know in technology development that if you ask a person what you want a system to be, they'll tell you one thing. But if you observe what they're doing and you see where they're hitting roadblocks, you actually come up with things that they don't even realize. Um, so Rachel, very interesting. I just said that last week to one of my members who who had suggested around something, hey, do you want to do a survey? And I was like, they're notoriously inaccurate. If you ask people what they want, yeah. it does not reflect what they actually do um, given given the system. You're so yeah, right. Or ask them the big questions, like ask them how much they'd be willing to pay. It's never accurate. So the title of this session um, has two words in it that are really, really key. That's technology and people. So both are really fundamental to something that many see as a dirty word, but I absolutely love it. And that is infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So anybody who knows me or has ever sat on a board with me knows that I love to talk about infrastructure because I think it is so incredibly essential. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's top of mind for you today on that Mm -hmm. topic of infrastructure? Well, I share your passion for infrastructure. Uh, And it's funny, I think we're in an era when infrastructure doesn't really make people's eyes glaze over anymore. Well, um, I hope not. I, you know, I think not. There, I, I wrote a, um, an op-ed in the Chronicle of Philanthropy last month, and I gave them a couple of options for the end of the op-ed, and they picked the infrastructure ending because hmm. that felt more relevant to people right now. And maybe that's because we've all lived through a pandemic and realized how dependent we are on our infrastructure, especially our digital infrastructure. Um, it doesn't just mean bridges and community centers anymore. I think we've all realized it means uh, the ability to do remote work, make paperless payments, so on and so forth. Well, and people and the ability to hire really good people and retain them, that's infrastructure process. You're right. Infrastructure. You're right. So I think we are um, in a place where philanthropy has a new openness and willingness to fund this kind of infrastructure, to fund you know, shared data platforms for the sector. Um, historically, philanthropies maybe funded uh, things that are only related to the program, you know, like a, maybe a, a mobile app for online learning or um, tracking healthcare for people without homes. But we're in a place now where philanthropy is thinking about how do we as funders collaborate and collectively fund infrastructure, like a shared data platform, like the ability for nonprofits to move to the cloud. Um, I think there's an equity piece to this too, actually. The pandemic made many foundations realize that their well-endowed nonprofits had an easier time moving to remote work um, than their smaller community-based nonprofits. And so some funders even provided um, tool subscriptions technology, even open up their own help desk, their own internal IT help desk to their nonprofits in order to upskill um, through the pandemic. 
But you said something that really struck me when we were um, connecting last week, and it's it's a little more strong than what you just said, and I actually agree with it. You said um, that if philanthropy doesn't invest in tech infrastructure, you are enabling inequity. I so say that. a little more about that. Um, there is, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna quote a program officer at the Ford Foundation who spoke about this very eloquently. I can't quote him directly because I, can't, I don't remember it directly. Um, but what he, in what he, in essence, said was, the privileged nonprofits have the resiliency to adapt in in, in with the lack of investment in this kind of infrastructure. It's the underprivileged nonprofits that will fall behind. And the digital gap widens for the smaller community-oriented underprivileged nonprofits when we don't invest in this shared infrastructure. So infrastructure kind of takes us um, into, a, into another kind of interesting question. Because when I think about infrastructure, so Blackboard has some grant making programs and we give unrestricted money because we understand infrastructure is really important. You're kind of taking this bet sometimes when you're investing in an organization, you are investing in all that it is and all that it does versus just potentially investing in a program. And and that's not always typical. So, you know, you talked to me a little bit about two approaches in grant making, the values driven and the data driven. And yeah. that's also an equity issue too, right? So are they at opposite ends of the spectrum or can they, is there room for both? Mm, this is a real tension right now. Like we're in the middle of this one. We, we're we're really in the middle. I, I am hearing from many of my members that their board on one hand would like them to be more data-driven and how they allocate resources and how they measure outcomes. Uh, on the other hand, they are also feeling real pressure from team members, from movements more broadly to be more values-driven. Maybe that's a movement like uh, you know, relational philanthropy or grassroots philanthropy or trust-based philanthropy. Um, and so many of my members do not know how to resolve that tension. And I think that that my personal opinion is that that's a false dichotomy. You know, I think there's a third way. I think we can think about data as a as learning. If we think about data as extractive, yes, that's an exercise in privilege. If we think about data as as co-learning, funder and nonprofit shared learning on the journey, um, I think there's a way for data to be to be valuable and to support values. Uh, but I think there's some explain a little bit more for our listeners who might not understand that term. What do you mean by values based mm -hmm. philanthropy? What does unpack that a little bit? Mm -hmm. So, for example, the uh, trust based philanthropic movement. Um, I've done some really great work uh, with Shadi, who's an extraordinary uh, Shadi Salehi, who leads the trust based philanthropy project. And she's doing an incredible job right now in the sector um, asking asking funders to think about the way that their processes either, either engender or undermine trust with their nonprofits. And so that is an example of a values-based philanthropy, um, orienting your philanthropic processes and practices to either build or support or engender trust. So that's an example of one. Um, and I think that what we see this third way for funders who are able to do both, they are no longer asking for data they don't use. Hmm. When they receive the data, they're, they're in fact, they're co-creating with their nonprofits the kind of data the nonprofits want to report on. Um, 
they consider it within a learning framework. So data in shared with all nonprofits working on the same issue, uh, discussed in context. Um, funders are also, funders who are finding this third way are also holding themselves responsible for data at the field level. So they're asking nonprofits to report only on data related to the grant and only on stuff that matters. And the funder themselves is doing larger scale societal field level outcomes data analysis. Um, and I think that that there's another piece that's really important to me. The change maker experience framework, by the way, is one way of saying when you start doing things like adding trust based practices, adding collaborative practices, are those actually helping or hindering the nonprofits ability to get their job done? Do you know that? Do you know whether adding on a more trust-based approach is helping or hindering? So developing that experience framework and listening systems allows you to know whether your values-driven approach is actually helping them. Yeah, I love the language you're using. It sounds very fluid and evolutionary. You know, it's it's um, that you're learning together, you're listening, you're not just saying here it is and you have to follow these rules. It's very equitable and connected and collaborative. Um, I don't know, that just makes me happy. It's what so, I'm seeing from our members that are resolving that tension between values-driven and data-driven. If you believe in the outcomes, if you really seek the outcomes, I live in the, in the South Loop in Chicago. If I really care about the outcomes of my neighborhood, I do wanna be able to quantify them so we can do more of them, right? Right. Um, and I think funders that have embraced the third way uh, are not abandoning being both data-driven and values-driven because they do ultimately seek the value, the outcomes, and they want to do it respectfully with their partners. Yeah. So um, one more quick question before I get to my final, uh, final one is, you've talked about CEOs wanting dashboards more around impact. Um, can you share a little bit about what you, what experiences you've seen there, or is it still very evolutionary? That is a very interesting question, Rachel. We're seeing, um, we actually have an event uh, later this week on uh, dashboards, KPI dashboards and philanthropy. And we're seeing a couple of things. Uh, again, typically coming from the board, um, board pressure on a CEO, wanting outcomes dashboards for the outcomes, programmatic outcomes, but we're also seeing portfolio allocation dashboards mm -hmm. like where's the money going is the money mm -hmm. going to these kinds of organizations led by these kinds of people in this geography um that's the typical portfolio level dashboard and the question that i have is to what extent are executives using those dashboards to drive decision making in their organizations or are they using them in such a way as to kind of feel good and to be able to send a, a picture of a chart to the board of directors. I, I don't know the answer, but there is also a tension there. Um, yeah. Like, are we using these dashboards? This is just a trend that we want to say we're doing. Or are we using these to drive decision-making? Yeah. I've always been taught that there's a story behind every number and I'm on a number of different boards where we, we want a dashboard, but coming to that a kind of mutual understanding of which elements to put on it that are the most important drivers of success or indicators of risk mm -hmm. is really hard, really hard. It's not the same for each one. And, mm -hmm. you know, each one that you pick could overshadow um, more in-depth understanding if you paired it with another piece. So you're so right. And if you're seeking outcomes at the at the uh, population level, 
it's going to take five years before that dashboard move, you know, the, the data on that dashboard's updated, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing about data. You're, you're, if you're asking organizations to deliver data and they don't have the infrastructure to do it and you're not funding that infrastructure, it is going to take a very, very long time before they can even get there. And maybe they will never get there. Meanwhile, you have all of this need. Um, you're so right. I'd love to comment on that. Sure. Go ahead. One of the things we are starting to see is a recognition that funding infrastructure, whether it's t uh, data or tech infrastructure, is that it's not just about the tool. It's about the strategy for how you implement that tool, how data flows between the variety, the elements of your tool stack, how it's integrated. So it's about the strategy, the tool, and the skills. You can't totally. just plop a piece of tech in an organization without a strategic plan and without the skills for that to be used wisely in the organization. Yeah, I've been at Blackboard for a long time, and we used to talk about people, process, and technology. But but what you just said is so true. I mean, technology in itself, or a soft piece of software or solution, is not unto itself the solution that is just going to do everything for you. You have to understand how to use it. You have to understand why you're using it. You have to train the people who are using it. You know, it's it's um we've seen a lot of organizations where that doesn't happen because they do treat it like, well, we're going to have this thing, and it is going to address all of this. Mm -hmm. It's very much a marriage of, of all of that coming together. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you one last question before we finish today, um, because I know the people who are listening to us have more questions. So if they want to learn more about what you've been talking about or specifically about funding nonprofit technology infrastructure, mm -hmm. is there one specific place you would head them to as mm -hmm. kind of jumping off point? Mm -hmm. You know, this is this is emergent. Tech's been doing some great work with Tech Impact to raise awareness about the need for investing in what I might call the operational tech. You know, not just the mobile, not just the mobile app for your program, but the infrastructural operational tech for nonprofits that really has become an equity issue. Um, we're ho we're hosting a great event, April twenty eighth, uh, tagtech.org/fundingtech. So tagtech.org slash funding tech. And we will be speaking with three different uh, grant makers who are actively funding this kind of operational technology for their organizations and what they've learned along the way um, and where they see a greater need for this kind of funding from grant makers. So we'll have um, Okta for Good, their team from the Bay Area. We'll have the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation from uh, Kansas City, and then a brand new foundation, the Song Foundation out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. So I'd love to, it's gonna be a two hour workshop oriented session. It's a great way to dig in. Uh, we're calling it Tech Funders 101. Uh, it's a great place to get started in how to fund the operational infrastructural tech for nonprofits. Well, Chantal, it has been incredible having you with us on the SG Engage podcast. I want to say thank you for spending your time and sharing your wisdom. A delight. Thank you very much for having me. And to the SG Engage podcast listening audience, I want to thank you for tuning in for another episode. Please join in and listen to our other episodes wherever you consume your podcasts. And to everyone else, I want to say thank you so much for joining. This is Rachel Hutchison signing off.